Welcome to the Almost Perfect Podcast, a celebration of fuck-ups, failures, and falling flat on your face. This is a podcast that believes you can learn from experience, but that experience doesn't have to be your own. Ha, I'm Bob Perfect, and I'm a functional fuck-up. Let's learn from somebody else's mistakes, and today we are learning from Takunda Bima. Now, Takunda is the festival director and founder of the Johannesburg International Comedy Festival, and he also started a comedy uh, management and promotion agency back in the day called Podium, which is responsible for some of the biggest acts in the country and out of the country at this point. We're talking names like Jesus Lodiga, we're talking names like Luis Agola, talking names like Trevor Noah. You know them, you know those names. And uh, we hear how Tsukunda got working with them. It all started uh, with the Pure Minati show, which is something that uh, is a South African comedy treasure. It's uh, seminal, as they say. Anyway, I need to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by you, which means you can support it by going to patreon.com forward slash almost perfect. And without the way, here comes the almost perfect podcast with Tsukunda Bima. So how are you living, Takunda? I am living just fine, sir. Just no, I'm fine. good. No, I'm I'm very I'm very well. Thank you very much. Yeah, just um, yeah, sort of navigating the post-COVID world, you know, and just sort of recalibrating around that, you know. But um, yeah, all good, man. All good. Yeah. So you work in live events, comedy, quite a lot, and. Yeah. Obviously, COVID did hit things. How did you adjust? What did you do? What was like your thinking as soon as stuff starts yeah. shutting down? Because I had the the Heat City Comedy Festival, mm. which was going to be in August 2020, mm. and by July, like everything was shut down. Yeah, before that, so it was just like we can't do this. Yeah. So, what were your thoughts and stuff? Oh, no, man, it was it was the thing is, none of us had any idea what this pandemic was going to do mm-hmm. to the industry. And never mind that, even when it did hit us, like the, the extent at which it just decimated the industry was unprecedented. You couldn't even plan for it or whatever. So I think for me, fortunately enough, I've been in the, the, the game for, for a long time. And not just comedy, sort of starting to expand into other genres of entertainment. But yeah. because I've, of that, I was able to almost like pivot and start doing a lot of consulting. Um, I do a lot of consulting to to brands and agencies anyway, because all my years in the entertainment industry, creating content for audiences, marketing strategies for audiences, PR strategies for audiences, media, all that stuff. Whenever I produce a festival or a show, I need to know who's my market, how am I going to get to them, you know, on what platforms, with what talent. And funny, as years went by, a lot of agencies and brands started coming to me like, well, we saw what you did with that TV show, or we saw how you branded that thing, or we saw how you you were able to activate an audience and fill up an arena. Can you give us, you know what I mean? Can, you con- can, can we consult, uh, you know, this is our brand, or this is our product, or this is our market. How can we engage with them better? How can we connect with them better? So a lot of that... It was just stuff I've learned over the years just because of what I did, you know? And now it was like, oh, this information is valuable. So essentially I've been consulting, you know, through through COVID. So almost like my festival, which I'm sure we'll speak about, yes. you know, <laughs> l- later on, or any shows that I wanted to do, tours, all that stuff collapsed. You know, you, it's crazy. You have a whole calendar and you plan the year 
And then you're literally like, okay, then all of that is gone. And I so, think the thing you would have been feeling, which was the thing I was feeling, was the momentum that you had going. Because yeah. like the Joburg International Comedy Festival is something that had been building for years. Like, 100%. And so it was peaking 100% like, it was getting to a place the road 100%. just gets pulled no for sure and you know you 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 plan in advance you're like cool this is where we're trying to take this festival but you know that things like festivals properties of that magnitude or of that ambition it's going to take a while to build and yeah. you have to you have to build credibility you have to build profile you have to build trust within the industry yep. talent need to trust you you're going to do this thing it's going to be well produced i'm going to get paid you know what i mean so we were on a good wicket when covid hit and it just really was just like oh my goodness what happens now and it's then everything was shut down for a year and then you're like okay maybe next year you know maybe it was just a hiccup and then another year goes by but interestingly enough it also gave us an opportunity to just also recalibrate and sure. revisit strategy and revisit game plan. Yeah, because this one was a bit stripped down, the last one. That you yeah, did. exactly. And I think this last one we did now in March, in many ways, it was like our coming out of COVID edition. Yeah. So I think the team and I were like, let's be lineup. realistic. Yeah, the, I mean, I think that's where we're so blessed. And that goes to show, for me, it was very humbling because the the way the industry came out to support it, you know, was just incredible. Yes, we had smaller rooms than we normally have, for example, but we could still put for we could still put together a really quality quality comedy experience. Yeah. And with festivals, that's what it's about, right? Doesn't matter if the room has got fifty people or five thousand people. If people have a memorable experience, they'll next come year back. they'll come back. The people. And that's how you build, you know? So we kind of sort of like went like, look, we're coming out of COVID. Let's be realistic. People are still a bit like wary about being in big crowds. People are still not comfortable about going out. You know what I mean? Let's be more conservative about the model. So we had more days, but smaller numbers, smaller rooms. But the thing was like, let's focus on quality rather than quantity and get the brand going again. You know, so from an PR, activation, social media, all that. We still went full ball, yeah. you know, but we're just looking to sell slightly less tickets than we normally do. But it's about the long-term thing. And talent, the artists love the thing, just being back on a proper comedy stage, not necessarily a corporate or like, you know, a club, uh, a restaurant stage somewhere. <laughs> Where there isn't even a stage. You know what I mean? Just yeah, like I do. <laughs> a comedy and, and also people who paid money, good money to come and watch comedy. Like people who appreciate comedy. People who are like, I haven't had comedy, like live comedy for almost a year and a half. And are now, you finding that you like know? the crowds are there? Because I'm finding oh, yeah. I've only done two gigs like that I've organized myself and both have been sold out. It's like 60 tickets sold out, but yeah. still like that in Durban never used to happen. Sure. Like pre-sales were not a thing. Yeah. And now people are actually buying tickets to go to shows ahead of time, like a week ahead. They yeah. know what they're doing. And that's so different to how Durban used to be. No, I, and that's a global phenomenon. It's not just a Durban or South Africa, or it's globally. Um, the comedy fraternity is experiencing this like overwhelming, like, and I think it's people that what the not having life entertainment for the past, better part of the past two years. Yeah. I think people got to sort of like really appreciate live entertainment and what it does and what it means to them and their psyche and, and, and. So I think when things opened up, there was just like this overwhelming demand, you know, for something that they've missed for so long. And I, I mean, I hope it's sustained 
it'll probably well with not the finances at the moment that's the issue that i'm exactly, facing well yeah. i'm thinking i'm not well in my mind i'm facing like we haven't really seen the limitations yet like yeah. getting back into the like promoting side of things things seem pretty good but i am stressed about you know people's wallets at the end of the day there's because yeah. there's something luisa gola mentioned when i chatted to him was just the middle class markets in south africa is so small and they're the ones yeah. who sustain comedy so 100%. is that something you worry about 100 I, i mean So I mean I ran my comedy agency podium for 10 years yeah. and one of the reasons why I with all the sort of great success we experienced and enjoyed during that 10 years you know which I'm you know so humbled by and it was ama- it was an amazing journey we'll get what, into it now <laughs> yeah we'll get into it but one of the main reasons I parked podium in that iteration of a model of business was primarily because of that you know we realized that in a lot of the stuff that we're doing because obviously we were managing comedians but we're also producing shows we're producing their content what we realized is that very quickly especially premium level talent top tier talent like your Trevor Noah or Luis Ogola guys were becoming almost like a big fish in a sp- small pond very quickly yeah and getting to a glass ceiling in terms of so never mind the numbers but even in terms of the opportunities so if you're a comedian in South Africa you aspire to oh do your one man do a one man show do a one man show tour have a tv show Maybe be in commercials theater. get brands do a theater do an arena do the all the biggest shows you know in South Africa whether it be blacks only or you know what i mean what, the funny festival whatever yeah. it is They but now i feel like Luisa Gola like You, with you know within a short space of time you've done everything yep but that's why I mean? he's uh, you know he did the apollo and stuff like that cuz he knows the level isn't here anymore it's but, there but having said that there's some comedians who get to that level and they don't leave do you know what i mean yeah. and what ends up happening is like it's almost like the walls start closing in on them because they they can't grow any further than the 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 glass ceiling won't let them go any further And it's also I guess like the iron sharpens iron and you know like if you're at the top 100%. there's no one else to try and be better than 100%. So and also if you think about it just in any endeavor of expression or you know sport or whatever art you know you get to a certain point and now you are you know excelling and you're at the top of the food chain if you want to put it that way you're always going to like aspire for the next level or the yeah. next step. So if you're a football player, you play for the under 18s, you want to play for the under 21s, then you want to play for Kaiser Chiefs, the main team, and then you want to play for Bafana Bafana, and then you want to go play for Tottenham Hotspurs or you want, do you know what I mean? Yeah. You want to go to the World Cup. Now, f- what I f- was so starting was to podium was meant to be well, when you started it, where you're like let's create the Premier League, like. So I think because I mean, okay, I'll say it's like yeah. you know, the guys you got involved were in art to this day some of the biggest names that have ever come out of South Africa. And you sure. got them at a time where they were starting to become big names but yeah. like i do think podium was responsible for a lot of them getting further i mean and also you produced the pure nazi show yeah the second season that's the pure nazi show yeah. you know how like influential that show is to me and to like <laughs> i think everyone doing stand up comedy like sure. now because like yeah those guys that were part of that and then you know some of them went on to do huge things in comedy sure. you're looking at your lisa your uh, 
Luisa Gola and Trevor Noah in particular, but even yeah. the David Kabukas, yeah. Stuart Taylor, you know, Stuart's killing it like around South Africa in general. He's one of the biggest names now. Yeah. Kabuka's overseas. Like it's, yeah. how did you, yeah. So you were like, let me start the Premier Leagues here, basically. No, no, not even that. And I'll be absolutely, I mean, I'd love to say that. And so it's sometimes when you look back and f when people look at maybe our journey and the podium story and they look at maybe where we ended up and the successes and what the talent went on to do, it's very easy to say, oh, you had a great plan and it worked out. Yeah. <laughs> I won't lie to you. I think the thing for me was I, I, I produced the second season of the Piomnati show 2005. I was, was that the one with the Survivor Soweto? Yeah. And yeah. Survivor Soweto, Survivor Kwamashu, and it was, it was yes. rock and roll. <laughs> but I was very fortunate. I think, I mean, Kakiso Ledika is... I think people, as much as people know what he's contributed, I don't think people un truly understand the contribution he's made, you know, and certainly in my, in my journey, because I'd never produced a TV show before I did the Piumanati show. And I've so never, I've never produced a TV show <laughs> after that. That was the only thing I've ever produced, but how'd no, they, they, the, the show had done incredibly well in season one. Yeah. It had critical acclaim and it had just completely ushered in this new way, new voice you know, in the comedy space that had yeah. never been experienced before. And Kakiso actually pitched the Pure Minati show to the SABC six years prior to it being commissioned. He had actually forgotten about it. He pitched it to the SABC. Years went by, nothing, nothing, nothing. Kakiso was in Edinburgh at the Edinburgh Comedy Festival, his very first Edinburgh Comedy Festival. And he got a phone call and hello, it's such and such from the SABC. And he's like, okay, you know, how can I help you? And they're like, we want to, we want to commission your show. We want to do it. You know, <laughs> he's like, what, what do you, what do you, what show are you talking about? You know, that show you pushed and he had literally forgotten about it kind of thing. And then he was like, oh shit, the piano. Oh, you want to do, he's like, yeah. And uh, we want a TX like within a month or something. And he was just <laughs> like, um, I'm in I'm Edinburgh. Busy, yeah. I'm a bit. And they're like, listen, that's the slot. To, to kind of take it or leave it, he had to leave the Edinburgh Comedy Festival mid-festival to come back and do the show. And I think they did season one. He wanted to have a young production company, young everyone, young director, young producer, young, because yeah. he wanted to tap into a certain way of thinking. But I think when it's like a young, like a whole lot of young people and they've got a big chunk of money, they did a great <laughs> job of producing it, but like There's they the didn't have like, the experience. Yeah. So there was issues with the production from like there was outstanding debts and all that kind of stuff. And so the season two, the SABC were like, look, your ratings, it's undeniable what the show has done, but you guys need to get like a project manager or something. We're going to give you a budget, but you also need to recoup whatever debts from season one you need to sort it out within this budget. So Kakiso had to look for like a, so they said, get a super seasoned producer. But what that meant is getting somebody who was old, old school and conservative. So Kakiso was like, I'm going to get a project manager. So I'd done, I'd like done a, 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 a BCom degree majoring in law, came out of university, didn't know what I wanted to do. I did project law management is, for a little bit. Yeah, like yeah, that's yeah, the funniest yeah. thing to hear you did law. And like, to what no, you I did into. law. Yeah, I did law. And um, that helps with contracts, I'm I guess. grateful for that <laughs> because it helped me a lot along the way. But um, they, they needed a project manager and a friend of mine. The, the editor of the show went to school with me and he was like, hey, this guy's never produced anything, but I think he's good for the job. And Kakiso had an interview with me and he was like, what if experience have you got? And I was like, I got nothing. I don't even know why I'm here. So were you not in comedy at all before then? No. 
That's no. amazing. No, nothing. I not in comedy. Never was not in production. I was nowhere. That I was I was incredible. doing project management. I was semi professional rugby player. It was all a mess. Um, but Kahiso was like interviewed a couple of people, and he was just like, I don't know if I should. You shouldn't be getting the job. You got no experience. You got nothing. But there's there's something. There's a connection. Let's let's go. And that that's how I got onto the show. And I. I'm so fortunate because I feel like it was such an exciting time for comedy. And it's, the country was 10 years old. Yeah. So culture was being redefined, if that makes any sense. 100%. Everything was new. Like I remember Every, like the Fat Joe show. Like the 100%. Fat Joe, Fat Joe on the planet. That was, yeah, like that. And then Pure Manati show. That's yeah. a Yeezo, Yeezo. Yeah. Like that was all around the same time exactly. period. It was to this day, maybe I'm just looking back like with rose sense of glasses and nostalgia, yeah. but like I still think that was like a peak work of South African no, content. I was so, and I, I I'm so grateful to have been in the in the scene at that time when we were literally redefining culture, yeah. redefining identity, redefining what it means to be black or white or colored. Or That's what made PMS so good was 100%. that like just hearing and seeing ideas that were. Very risque, even to this day. Out there. Yeah. Out there. And I think also what Kakisa did so well was the the cast that he curated yeah. for that was so diverse. It wasn't a singular sort of kind of comedy voice. No. It was from Joey Razdin to like Lois Ogola, from Chris Forrest to Ronnie Modamola. You know what I mean? From Kim Engelbrecht to oh, yes. like... Riyad Musa, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and every and David Cow and yeah. you know, um, so it was just and David Kibuka and it was just so whenever these guys like their writers room was to this day one of the most like entertaining things I've ever experienced because they would literally be in a big room in this sort of in the uh, Atlas Studios and literally you could just whatever. You woke up thinking or you, you know, funny thought, you just threw it there. And then it would be put through this blender of like everyone like Koki Falco will start a gag and yeah, say, Koki. what about this ah. premise? What do you think of this premise? What if there's a Zulu speaking white guy, but he's a gangster and then someone else throws in. And then by the time the, the sketch is done, it's like this thing that has been like carved out by you know, 10 of the country's youngest, hottest comedy minds, you know, well, at the time. That's carried on though, like so, with writer's room since then. So you look at yeah. Ellen and you look at Bantu Hour, and I've chatted to people working on them. They seem to describe it similarly to what you just said about PMS. And that's, that's Kahiso's contribution. Yeah. Cause I think that probably, I stand to be corrected, but in, that was probably one of the first writer's rooms done like that in the country from a comedy perspective. Sure. And Kahiso and his business, Deprente, they've continued that narrative like, anything that they do it's always like writer room based so if the creative is so compelling because it's literally like the minds of all these really brilliant minds coming together to create a thing and Kakiso has always done a great thing of like helming it and guiding it and creating the framework but like how that then you know everyone then populates you know what I mean um, and that's been I think the secret of, of, of their success with LNN with Bantu Awa it's always been like so culturally relevant yeah. you know what I mean and so like textured 
You know, yes. sometimes you get certain things and after you watch a couple of episodes, it's like, yeah, you know, it's the same thing over and over. Okay, cool. Thanks. Cheers. I'm out. You know what I mean? Whereas this, it retains that freshness and that kind of thing. So, so that's how my journey started. And then the, afterwards, uh, like you speaking about the risque vibes, the show was doing so well, but it was just too much for the SABC at the time. It was too risque. It was too, they kept telling us, don't say this, don't do that. And Kakisa was like, as soon as we stop doing that, it, it loses its identity. So they didn't commission it after the second season. Yeah. And, but from that, I had realized that there was something going on here in this comedy thing. And all these comedians also at the time they're all like mid-20s all young and they're also so what i was going to say what would have been cool about that writer's room is the egos would have been like at their lowest essentially because no one no one had made it yet hundred percent hundred percent and i don't think that could ever be replicated again in that way no you know what i mean um i do think the timing of all of that like like I've always like thrown a bit of shade saying like some of that generation's lucky that they were just the first no but like in respect though like yeah. they did actually like do it first and they like a lot of them did it really really fucking well no 100%. like pms is foundational no and i keep that's why i keep saying i'm i consider myself very lucky to have been in in the scene at that time you know and people weren't so jaded because whatever <laughs> you wanted to do you could try you could not saying everything worked out but everything was new they so if you came up to complain about, you know what I mean? If, if, if Bob, if you came up with like a weird ass interview TV format show and was weird, everyone, like there wasn't judgment. It was just like, okay, cool. That's what you're trying. Let's see what happens. Yeah. Whereas I think now there's more like, yeah, what is that's that? Not gonna you work, know, that's going to work. You know what I mean? So much has been done, but back then nothing had been done. Not, not saying that there was nothing, but like yeah. everything was emergent. So, so yeah, saw so I, I saw, scene. and I was just like, "There's something here, and I think I can contribute something." Because I was like, "All these young comedians, all they have is their craft, and they're brilliant." But they didn't, <laughs> they didn't have a business model to their, what they were doing. They didn't have a strategy. They didn't have a linear plan. Like, okay, cool. This is where I'm now. This is where I'm trying to go. And to get there, this is what I need. Have you always you been know? like that though? As someone who's been like, yeah, goal driven. Yeah. I, I guess. Do you know what I mean? I guess. And I, I, you know, I'd had a big like sporting background and I'd captain teams and stuff like that. So I always so understood, I always understood the the whole notion of, people coming together to achieve a common purpose, number one. And number two, knowing that what role you must play in that. Do you know what I mean? So for sure. example, a soccer team, right? If you're a goalkeeper, you must be the best goalkeeper you can be. And you're not scoring the goals, no. but the team's success is dependent on you, like staying in your lane in that way and being the best Watch, do you understand what I'm saying? I understand 100%. Yeah. So which is, to a large extent, people have always asked me, oh, are you? A com did you ever do comedy yourself? Did I was going to ask if you ever wanted to. Not really, actually. Because I've always felt like if, if Luis Ogola is a striker, let, he's the striker. He's the star of the show. Like, But the team wins if I stay behind the scenes and I do what I'm, do you, do you see what I'm saying? Oh, 100%. And, and no, like we need people like you, but like the South African comedy industry doesn't have many people yeah, who yeah, are yeah, actually yeah. producing. Like, I mean, I organize my own stuff because I'm from Durban and if I don't, I want you have to. Yeah. <laughs> like, you that's, have to. No, no. And it's, it's, it's so hectic. But yeah, I think for me, I just realized that very quickly. And I was like, 
let let's see. So I, I so basically, and that's when I started my my agency podium. Yeah. And also to Who a large extent. Who did you approach extent, first, by the way? Sorry. Who did you approach first? Kakiso. Oh, obviously. But primarily because I lived with him. So, oh, <laughs> so, yeah, so like, the relationship I'm here. Like that. So it's like, dude, I'm here. I might as well manage your staff. You know what I mean? Fuck, that's cool. And <laughs> and and I remember we 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 stole after PMS. We, the, you know, we bought computers with, the, and we we stole one of the computers, and that was that was our thing. And we put the computer in the kitchen of where we stayed, and that was the office. So it was so funny because he, he was my housemate, but he's also my client. We'll be partying together, you know what I mean? And then in the morning, he like work. he misses his flight because we're partying, and then I'm like, but dude, how you know? You missed the flight, this gig. And you're like, but you were there with me last night, bro. We're having a good time. What are you talking about? So it was this weird, it was such an interesting dynamic, you know. Um, but the friendship was what underpinned the, And I understood him. I understood what he was trying to do. And it, that was literally the humble beginnings. It was literally from there. And I think the same way Kakiso gave me a chance with producing the Pio Minati show, when I was like, yo, Kags, I think I'm going I'm to start an agency and I'm going to rep- represent young talent like yourself. And also at the time, there was no black producer, black promoters, black agents, black yeah. managers. But all the talent that was coming out was of color. Do you know what I mean? Yep. So I was like, I think I understand you guys. And also we're the same age. So I understand like your pain points. I understand like the stuff that you, excites you, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time... I can take you to these corporates and I know how to position you, package package you so that you can, you know what I mean? You can make, earn money from corporates and from your brand and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, so, so it started like that and it literally was, there was no big plan. There was literally, let's, let's give it a go and see what happens. And a lot of learning on the ropes a lot of like making mistakes. I can imagine at that time, especially there isn't much of a roadmap ahead of you. No. Like there's other oh, people who like, you can look overseas, but yeah. even then there's nothing where like, Oh, democracy just happened. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And the diversity of audience and, and know. trying to reach all of them and knowing who to put where and how to reach those audiences. Like you were saying, that's, that's the biggest like I think that's the hardest part about comedy in South Africa. It's not the performing it. The performing it's fine. It's getting the audiences to see the right comedian. Yeah. Because you're often performing club gigs to people who are just there, which is great. Yeah. But like actually getting to your audience, you know, like someone yeah. like Skulk's done it really, really well, sure. you know. But like there's I, th- I think there are so many people who are like just like struggling with that thing of like, how do I actually tap into my audience? 100%. Well, even before that, how do I build my audience? Well, that's, do you know that's what I mean? essentially what I'm... Because like you mentioned Skulk and, you know, I think people underestimate how much he's had to work to build his audience. It's every day, all day. Like do, that's do you know what I mean? <laughs> and it's literally like who he is, his truth, how he engages the audience, the content he puts out, the roles he takes on, all of that is part of building his audience. And now he is where he, but he's had to work for that, you know? And I think that also, whenever I speak to promoters, I mean, whenever I speak to managers and agents from overseas, like in bigger comedy markets, whether it be the UK or the US, even Canada, I always say to them that I'm so envious for them because the audience is already built. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? They've already, all they need to do then is have a smart route to market strategy for their comedian and position them, manage them, produce them in the right way. But the audience is already there. And for, and you know, whereas with us, like, 
you know, you have to work so hard to put those bums in seats. I mean, I think people don't even realize how long it took Trevor. Like, you know, he was at the top of his game for like two years before he was like as big as he got, you know, 100%. like the CLC stuff. Like 100%. everyone in comedy knew who Trevor was, but yeah. like the country took a while to actually like get on board. Exactly. Exactly. So, so because of all these things and it was all emergent, there was no big, big plan, but I felt that the, the talent on its own for me was like, if we could package this talent well, position it well, and build a, a narrative, a strong narrative behind them, I was like, this something could happen. And then Cajiso was first, and then Loiso Gola was our second artist. That's a fucking great one-two punch. Like. Yeah. Loiso Gola, then David Kibuka, and then Trevor Noah, and then Eugene. Eugene oh, yes, Cosa. Eugene Cosa. Yeah, that guy is a phenomenon, but we'll also talk about him later. I'll get and, him on and here so, eventually. <laughs> and at the time, it really wasn't... I was just like, I saw in all of them, besides being talented comedians in their own right, I just felt that they all had such a unique story to tell. And when I say unique story to tell, I'm not talking about their upbringing, just their perspective. Yes. You know, was... And, and all five of them was also different to each other. So in my mind, it was never a case of rate, rating them against each other or ranking them against each other. So often people role. used to say like, hey, um, we want to book one of your comedians. Who's your best comedian? And I'm like, what kind of, what what, kind of comedy are you looking for? What's the gig? Who's the audience? Do you know what I mean? Because for me, there was never a, this one's bit. Yes, commercially successful. Of course, Trevor was like, you know what I mean? Still and, and still is. But I think for me, it was about... He's like the Jerry Seinfeld of South Africa, essentially. Like, you'll never reach, like, that much money, like, as long as you it's crazy. try. It's crazy. No, I mean, it's unprecedented, you know. And I, I have a... In my mind, I, you know, I finally figured out beyond the talent, also just the impact that he had, you know. There's also other factors there. But yeah, so the podium was then these five guys, and I'm like, cool. And also, it was at a time when managers and agents back then had such a bad rep. I mean, they still do. And they still do, which is unfortunate. And I guess they'll never have the best of reps. Do you know what I mean? Never. <laughs> well, there's but. people who earn their reps, people like you, like, you know, like that's the thing. It is a matter of in this industry over time, you learn who to work with and you learn who not yeah, to. 100%. And ev all the, everything you do. And I mean, I made tons of mistakes, but one thing I, and I guess for me, another thing where I feel I've been very fortunate is because everything I ever learned in comedy, I was taught by comedians. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I always operate from that perspective because everything like from PMS, then podium and every success we had, it was propelled by the talent I was working with. And they, they are them bringing me into their world, you know, and that kind of thing. So it's also important guess, in that you don't get them booked in shitty rooms then, you know, like without a stage and stuff like that. Because you hear comedians saying like, you know, I just want people seated in front yeah. of me, like with a mic, you know, I don't want people eating and this yeah. and that. But like a manager or someone who's not taking that kind of stuff in 100%. isn't thinking about what's the room like. Because yeah. they're just thinking, cool, we can get 50 people in here, they'll eat, we'll get a percentage of that. But then you're creating a shit show for the comedian. 100%. So if, 
And so, because from even from PM, I was rolling with the comedians. I'm so you're with just listening. Them. I'm with them at home. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? I'm with them. I'm, I'm partying with them. I'm, I am in their world. You know, I'm going out for food with them. I'm broke with them. Like sometimes we'll all be broke, you know? So the thing for me is I always, because comedians taught me everything, that's how I learned about like just in terms of, shows how to produce shows for comedians to enjoy them if a comedian has fun on stage it'll be a fun show half the job is already done the killing is going to be so much easier because you, the comedian's already in the right frame of mind he's in the best like best frame of mind to give their best performance and it's infectious and the room has got a vibe and you're going to kill you know, and for example, like David Kibuka ran the blues room in Santon when it was still the Balalaika Hotel and it was underground and it was probably for about a year and a bit, one of the best rooms in the country. And because it was run by a comedian who created it as a space for comedians, but also at the same time was super hectic on comedians about punctuality and sets and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so all of that, that's where my learning was from comedians with working from their perspective versus... So before, I think maybe my generation of managed agents, we came at a time when, because the country was so young, the, the people who could give you the gigs were the producers, managers, agents who had been doing it forever. Yeah. And they became the gatekeepers because they had access to all the corporates, access to all the venues access to all the brands that wanted to go into comedy. So the power dynamic was almost like skewed towards the gatekeepers the rather <laughs> than being built around the artists. Yeah. And so for me, and also you had this dynamic of booking agencies where, you know, these agents would have 60, 70, 80 people on their books, jugglers, comedians, this, this, this. And every person on those books was just a number. Yeah, you still see this now. So for me, in the first couple of years of Podium, I was like, I think we That's can build them as five. brands. And I was like, I've got these five and I'm going to build my business around these guys. And we're going to build them, yes, as artists, but we're going to build them as brands. And everything that they did, it had to be their name. You know, if it was like late night news with Lois Ogola, yeah. you know, or Kakiso Dika this, or Eugene, you know what I mean? It was like the brand. I mean, Celsi with Trevor Noah. Like, the brand, the brand, the, the brand. And I think that investment into the brand. And so even with the brand, every one-man show they did, it had to be in a room that is almost like on the level of their brand. You know what I mean? The pricing of the tickets, the level of their brand. You know, whatever associations, whether with the radio, you know, media or whatever it is. So for example, like when 5FM, when we did Daywalker with Trevor, that was the first time 5FM did a comedy show. And 5FM were flying at the time. DJ Fresh was there. Gareth Cliff was a big brand. You know what I mean? Now, when you go Trevor Noah, 5FM, Lyric Theater, you're already creating... That's a level. Do you understand what I'm saying? 100%. And, and then it sells out. And then and that, then, that and is then, the level now. Now, then people... So now in terms of now how you price Trevor for corporates or whatever after that, it's, it's a different ball game. He's gone to the next strata, but you had to consciously work on that. Do you know what I mean? And you also had to understand this artist, where are they now in their mindset? Sometimes artists go six months, I don't know, someone, guy breaks up with his girlfriend, he's not in a good place, cool dude, let's maybe chill on the corporates because they're like soul destroying. 
maybe just do club gigs. Do you know what I mean? Um, you've never done a corporate? Never done a corporate. I've done like, I MC like, the closest thing I do to corporates is emceeing like music festivals and gigs like that. You know, like that's my corporate because- It's not a corporate, bro. Yeah, I'm just saying. <laughs> it's not a I'm just saying because I can't do those. Yeah, like you're doing it in between like the CEO coming and giving a little speech and you're telling your yeah. jokes, but no one's laughing because yeah. they're not sure if they can or can't laugh. I personally just never got into comedy for that. And I know people do get into it for the money. And of course I want to earn a living off of this. And I understand yeah. that that is a level for people, yeah. but that's just me. Like, no. And you know, the, the corporate thing. Understanding my brand, yeah. you know? And look, to be fair, not all corporates are the same. Sure. But they're generally soul destroying for artists, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, primarily because it's almost like as close as comedians come to literally being a court jester. Yes. You are the hired entertainment dance. You know <laughs> what I mean? Let's, let's do things, make them laugh, funny man. You know what I mean? Um, and it's just not a room that's conducive. For it's not laughing. conducive. And then also half the people there are getting comedy imposed on them. They were not there for the comedy. They were there for the Anglo, you know, gala dinner. Yeah. Now all of a sudden there's this comedian and sometimes it's, it's not your type of comedy <laughs> yeah. versus... A thousand people Paint. pay to come see Bob do Bob comedy and they worship you. They love you. They're your people. I mean, that's the dream. Do you see what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. And, and once you've also experienced that to then have to go back to a room where no one knows you, no one appreciates you. No one really likes your stuff. But it's good to be humble sometimes, like, I guess. It's good. But like <laughs> try and make Cristiano Ronaldo play in some <laughs> shitty game for no reason. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, just, why am I leaving my house for this shit? So I, it, it was a delicate balance. And I think, but the unfortunate thing, especially back then, without the corporates, you couldn't sustain an existence. You couldn't sustain a living. I, mean, I think that's changing now. Still, but I think most comedians will still say that, like yeah. without the corporates and without adverts. 100%. Like in South Africa at the moment, I mean, you watch TV, you see Glenn, you see Skulk, you see Sean Ray, you see... Mojack, you just see all the comedians yeah. and all the ads. And yeah. like, that's how I come whenever I come up here, they pay for my food. Sure. <laughs> no, and back then there wasn't any of that, right? Yeah. Because comedy wasn't as mainstream as it is now. And it, comedy still has a big job to do to really earn its place in the mainstream sort of main market yeah, kind of thing. I ask you what you think about this sort of um, stuff now. Yeah. So, so yeah. So I think, so a podium first couple of years, the five guys, it started working out. You know, how long did it take for things to like really start to pick up? I think a good like two to three years. I felt okay, maybe two years. Okay, so what were the really. what were the first ones like? So the I think the first year was really just trying to figure out, you know, what does it mean to run an agency? Where is the potential? Where is the money? Comedians, if they're not doing corporates, what are they doing? Are they in clubs? You know, yeah. uh, are there any other ancillary opportunities? Can they write? Can they act? What do we do? Do we do partnerships with, with TV agents? What, you know what I mean? It was literally like Pandora's box type vibe, but I think slowly, but surely. And because of the talent that we had and because all the talent was really solid. And I also feel like I would like to believe them also being in this agency with other young people on their level who were also really amazing, I think it just sort of pushed all of them to be the best versions of themselves, you know? I get that, yeah. Um, when, when I think when Lloyd's success or Craig's success or Dave or Trevor or Eugene 
started like the podium emblem was like a constant thing with them and their success started becoming podium success. And then it started becoming like those podium guys, they're doing it differently or they're doing this. Or did you hear that they've now done a show at the Lyric? Or did you hear that they've done a show at the Teatro, you know? Or, you know, now they're doing a, you know, a TV show. Or do you see lawyers now got a TV show or whatever it is? So their success started becoming our success in that way. And then I think as we started growing and then we started pulling in and there was a, like a transitioning phase where when Trevor was like becoming like this big fish in a small pond and it was like clear that he needed to to grow and develop, he needed to get out, you know what I mean? And he moved to the States and he, it took him a long time to, to break in, but he did. Loy also was now like, I need to start looking at the UK, all that kind of stuff. Cags also was just like, but the TV and film, because he was, he's also, he's a storyteller. That's Cags, yeah. you know, and comedy. And he's a facilitator as well. Stand up is one of the, his mediums, but now he was also writing, he's acting. So I think as the sort of the walls were closing in and the sort of big fish in a small pondness started sort of suffocating guys. As these guys were moving, podiums also started bringing in other guys. That's when Stuart Taylor yeah, came in and yeah. Conrad Koch. And we're already working with like Robbie Collins and Tolas Mo and Asia B. There was a whole lot of comedians. There was like a transitioning the phase wave, there, the next yeah. wave. But even then, I was also starting to realize like th- there's more comedians that come into the scene every year. So let's say, let's say here's the, there's the comedy cake, right? There's a comedy cake. And it gets baked at the beginning of every year, and then everybody eats from that, right? Now, the cake was not getting bigger. It was incrementally getting bigger every year, but like by small margin. And the comedians are just which yeah. is the which is the the demand. Let's call it, the cake is the demand, you know, and everyone yeah. eats from the demand. The audience, the audience, the corporates, the brands, the TV shit, you know, yeah. all that stuff. So it wasn't growing significantly, but the supply was growing exponentially because every year was the next wave of comedians. And in, the, in, in that wave was like the next whoever, the next whatever, was real talent. I think I mean? it's been harder for those guys, though, to like break through the way your first father did, you know, yeah. because of the fact that there's always new people in that. So always it's so new. hard for someone to really establish themselves long-term. I always used to say, I remember saying to comedians back then, I always used to be like, especially when guys are starting to make it, I was always like, it, you know, once you get to a certain level, I was like, it's not about where you are now. It's about where you're going to be when the next version of you arrives. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, for example, yeah, yeah. if we're to use, well, yeah. exactly, if we to use David Kibuka as an example, like, dude, like, I remember, like, he did his, uh, Grahamstown, he won a uh, thing oh, award, yeah. you know, uh, standing, ovation. standing ovation award, blah, blah, blah. And he was pretty stoked because he was like, he'd always had this opinion that he's, he was a better writer than he was a comic. And you know what I mean? And all of I us were like, dude, like. <laughs> you are a genius. Like David, there's some, I was speaking oh, I, to Mojo yeah. the other day. We still remember some of his premises. Like <laughs> to this day, they are like, there was, he was so ahead of his time in that way. He won this award and I was like, dude, but now it's not about where you are now. It's about where you're going to be when the next David Kabuka comes. Cause he's coming and he's going to be younger. He's going to be hungrier. He's going to be, he's going to be you five years ago. How do you compete with that? So the thing is, it's, it's a continuous. You have to keep pushing. You have to keep growing. You have to keep developing. And you literally have to jump from one deep end to the next. You yeah. know what I mean? Once you've 
conquered this deep end. How do you find the next deep end? And I think Trevor's done that like... Well, there's nowhere else for him to go. Like, there's no bigger stages he can do. Right? Well, if you look at his journey, even once he started when he broke through in the States, oh, yeah, he, he could have chilled. He could have been a correspondent on The Daily Show and that's oh, yeah. it. And and that would be a monumental achievement. But he's always, and even back when we were working together, he always looks for the next thing and he's like, let's go do that. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. And he's continued to do that. And his success now, I think people... Beyond his talent and everything and his marketability, I, think, I don't think people understand how, how hard he, he works yeah. and how much doubt he has to like, contend with and how many naysayers. I mean, I wouldn't imagine that guy has much self-doubt, but okay. Like, I mean, my, dude, every, comic, every comedian is every just a comic, insecurity. Every comic, because you, you, you live in your head, right? Con- literally, you're literally, all you're doing is having a conversation with yourself constantly. All you're telling yourself jokes. You're also, yeah, like imagining yourself on stage. You imagine you're going well. You imagine you're going bad. Like it's, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I, I think that's why like comedians are so always like 5-2 depression. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because they live in their heads all the time and they're continuously like having conversations with themselves and what about this, what about that? And you you get on stage and you say what you're thinking and people laugh and it validates your thoughts, it validates you. And then the next time and the next don't. you you say something, no one laughs. All it's like you reject yeah, vali- that's exactly it. You know all I mean? that validation's gone, all that even though you know you can do this thing, you've you've told this exact joke a hundred times and it worked. Hundred percent. So now it was the first time it didn't work, yeah. and you will literally hate yourself for the next three days. Hundred percent. And the thing is, it's like how do you imagine? I always say to people because I always like, yo, comedians are so hectic and they're so deep and they're so dark and blah. And I'm like, imagine if rejection was a big of part job. of your job. Like, I'm glad you see that. Do you know that. what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. And for me, when I started understanding those kind of things, I understood comedians a whole lot better. Do you know what I mean? And a lot of the time... Just those, little kids looking for approval. <laughs> yeah, it's so hectic. But it's it's. But I also feel that's why comedians have this camaraderie that no other, like, genre... I, I'm, I'm obviously very biased. Yeah. But I feel like comedians, and I've traveled with comedy all over the world, and I'd be very fortunate, and big scenes, big festivals, talk to big agents. I've seen and, Instagram, you know? yeah. <laughs> and the constant thing is... Like, because I think it's something you mentioned earlier, like the humbling, the humbling nature of comedy, you know what I mean? Yeah. No matter what level of stardom you get, comedy will always humble you on some level. Yeah, your next big, your next bad gig is like just around the corner always. And everyone's had a bad gig. Yeah. So, I but even Trevor still will have bad gigs by his level. To, like Till he's, till yeah, whenever. That's what people don't get. And the thing for me is, but that's what makes them soldiers of the same struggle. Yes. You know what I mean? Because every single person it's like has gone through that. So you as a comic, Dave Chappelle and Bob Perfect have they've both done open mics. <laughs> and they're both you guys literally could sit down and you're maybe on different spectrums of your comedy careers, but you could connect on certain experiences. Because yeah. you've got a shared experience. And that's what happened. Like if you think about all over the world, if you have a shared experience with someone, there's, there, you will always have that connection because of that. And one thing that I've seen, like, which is so fascinating, you go to like the Just for Last Comedy Festival in, in Montreal. I mean, it's huge. I mean, it's comedy for a month. It's over a million people. Just think about that. Yeah. A million people, right? And there's this 
they're the Hyatt, the the Hyatt Hotel in Montreal is basically where all the industry stays. I know all about Comedians, it. Yeah, you know I've, what I mean? I've listened to enough podcasts to know about the sure. Hyatt. Yeah. yeah, and the Hyatt, like bar, the bar room. Um, is where all the discussions the happen. We, when all the shows are done and everyone's now come back to the hotel and it's one, two, three in the morning and you look around you and there's like, there's Kevin Hart, there's James Akester, there's like, you know what I mean? But they're busy it, chatting to Robbie and like, yeah. But in that room... It's almost like the titles collapse and the celebrity levels collapse. And all it is, is comedians connecting as comedians. Although I guarantee you everyone in there is busy feeling like some type of way still. No, of course. You're like fanning out big time. You know what I mean? But all that needs to happen, for example, is Kevin Hart has got a big arena show at the Bell Center he needs to sort out five f- five minutes in his set that he hasn't fixed because he wrote it on the plane on the way to Montreal and he just needs to just feel it out. And he literally says to the organizers, "Just can I just do an open spot in this show? And, oh, what show can I do an open spot on? And they'll be like, oh, the Comedy Nest, which is a club, is the closest to the Bell Center. So just go do... How much do you need? I just need 10 minutes. Cool. Just go do 10 minutes. We'll let them know, but we won't announce you because the comedy nest is the closest to the big arena, right? Now, Bob is a comic from South Africa. He's doing a spot in the comedy nest. It's like a newcomer's showcase or whatever it is. And then Bob has the best (laughs) set of his life, kills it super hard, walks off and you're like, oh, wow, that was amazing. And then like, ladies and gentlemen, we've got a surprise act for you. You know what I mean? You all know him, no introduction needed. Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart walks on, crowd's like, oh my God. But it's, it's the Just for Last Festival. So of course Kevin Hart is here. Kevin performs, does what he needs to do, leaves with his people, gets into the car, goes and does his show to 20,000 people at the Bell Center. But later that night, he's at chilling the at the together. bar. He sees you and he's like, yo, man, Dude, you are at the Comedy Nest tonight. You killed it, man. What's your name? Oh, Bob. Where are you from, bro? South Africa. Oh, shit. So, you know, is, you're Trevor. Are you busy, are you busy how... saying the Robbie and Chappelle story, essentially? Because oh. that's like, I'm but, just imagining that's what happened. But that's repeated, right? Yeah. Now, if you were to take any other form of entertainment, whether it be music or whatever it is, you know what I mean? Tom Cruise, chances <laughs> of Tom Cruise randomly chatting to Bob at the bar. You're on your indie film, yeah. <laughs> You're not going to be in the same bar to start off with, with all respect. You know what I mean? I know, I'm not a Scientologist. That, so, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and, I, and so for me, that's always been such a special thing about comedy, like the... The, the great leveling. You know what I mean? And it's, it's soldiers of the same struggle. You come through the... It's the same rite of passage. It's just, everyone has, just has varying degrees of success, but it's the same thing. You I know what I mean? agree with you 100%. And that's why though. I'm always like, you always have to see it as... And it's, it's one big thing I've always said to especially young comedians. It's just like, find your truth and your truth, whatever that truth is, and then use that as a lens. Can your truth be not knowing what your truth is? <laughs> no. And and that's part of the journey. Like discovering your voice. You People yeah. say- you, you, I mean, it's and, taken me 10 years and I'm honestly still at a place where like, I feel the most comfortable I ever have as a human being now. Yeah. But- so that is translating on stage. Like I am more comfortable on stage, but I'm still not sure of my comedic voice. Like, yeah. and that's something that, like, I mean, there's lots of options. That's also yeah. the problem. It's like, you know, like I can do one-liners. I love doing one-liners, but I also love telling like a long story. Yeah. And so like when you were working with other people, like did they come to you with similar things and being like, bro, I don't know who I am on stage. Sure. So I think for me, um, 
one thing is you can't force it. Yeah. Because for me, comedy is, a, is an art form of truth and relevance. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So if you come on there and you, you know, you are superficial and it's almost like knock-knock jokey, you know what I mean? Ah, Jacob Zuma this. Ah, you know what I mean? Yeah. I see you've been laughs. to Durban gigs. I've seen yeah. you've been to Durban gigs. So you get the laughs and especially young comics, they're chasing the laughs so hard that they will just like, ah, look, look for the punchline. But for me, it's almost like if you can sort of have a foundational premise, like this is who I am. This is my perspective on the world and you know everything shifts. around me. And it shifts. And it evolves with you. But I think that if you can be true to whatever your truth is at any particular time, and then in terms of finding your voice, like you have a particular angle, you yeah. know what I mean? So for example, Lois Ogola, right? I think very early on, the thing was, he is the unapologetically young, black, empowered voice. Like, you know what I mean? But also he's not just saying what black people want him to say. No, 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 no. And also like, he's got this incredible way of making complicated things. Yeah. He's great so with his simple. analogies. He breaks it down so simply, but it became, and that, and then, that so that down. was his like entry point to any body of work. And it was always done from that point of view. The content can change. I, you know, Oh, I just, you know, started dating this girl. She's crazy, blah, 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 blah. But it's still coming from that perspective, you know? Oh, um, I'm so grateful to women. Cause my, you know, I was raised by a single mom and she's just gotten her degree and she's in her sixties. Like, do you know what I mean? The content's changing, but the point of view or his perspective or where he's coming from stays the same. And you as an audience or whatever, you can appreciate the gags. You can appreciate, you know, how funny or not funny, but in terms of, the relationship you have with law, you have the relationship with his narrative. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, it's the same way you, you, like Chris Rock, like would be like prime example for me growing up. Like Chris Rock fans will be like, I see Dave. I see Jerry Seinfeld. I see, you know, CK, but my guy is Chris. Chris Rock. Yeah. Do you understand what I'm saying? No, fully. That was me. And different, different Bernie Mac, you know, like, so, so. I, I need to get you motherfuckers. I'll tell you yeah. one thing. <laughs> For, I've got that on DVD. Like that is, yeah. Oh man, I love Bernie Mac so much. Like he's one of my all-time favorites. I think only one other comic for me, you know, it's funny. And that's Pryor. For me, Pryor is oh, like, yeah, Pryor is the godfather. Someone today, yeah. like I saw on Twitter was like, you know, who would you see live? Pryor or Eddie? And I'm just like, I love Eddie, but come on. That's not even a question. Dude, like, Eddie would say Pryor. Do you oh, know what I mean? Well, yeah, he was like, doing Pryor. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, no, yeah. so so anyway. <laughs> so yeah, so I think that but but if I can just going back to what you're saying about, you know, um finding you're finding your voice and so I think for me a big thing I've always been like as use other comics as a reference point, like yeah. how they do stuff, learn from their story, learn from their journey, be inspired by it, blah blah blah, but you got to you got to walk your own path. You got to walk your own journey and I think you got to there's in this finding of your like the differentiator, you know, like if you can get to a point where the material that you're doing on stage is so intrinsically Bob, it comes from your, it's got your mannerisms, it's got your personal stories, it's got your personal experience, it's got your sensibility, it's got your timing. 
and it can't be anyone else's, that's when you're like, okay, now I'm building my own thing and I'm going in my but own direction. Bad, but it's bad. <laughs> then you need to no. And I love the fact that you did that. You, you asked me that. Then you have to say to yourself, why is it bad? And you break it down. Well, that's what I'm working on, yeah. Because comedy also, as much as it's this fluid art form and it evolves as you evolve, it's also very scientific. Yes. When you break it down, you know, and you're like, right, what is my joke construction? You know what I mean? How is, why my pace, my rhythm? Do I undersell this? Do I oversell this? That's my biggest thing is just and like that, trying to figure out, it's like, is this a punchline where I really deliver it or is yeah. this a punchline that I drop in and like let them like just, you know, catch it on the eye? And then do you know what helps with that? And maybe that's maybe sometimes the challenge of being in a scene like Durban, it's you don't have enough time on stage. So when you, the, if, if like, in, in, like the UK, for example, how that industry is so strong is because guys, they, they're Three so, <laughs> they've got so much mileage. Yeah. So much mileage. If you're building, if you're doing a one-man show, you could literally work for like for three months, six months, and you could build an hour. Whereas in other places, you'd have to do it for a year, year plus to build an hour because you're not getting as much stage time. In the UK, you can be in London, you can be on two, three stages a night, and they're comedy stages, yeah, not a corporate, with, with a not a bar, not at this. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and so, then by the end of the night, you've got like a full five minutes. So, so you just said to me now. Like sometimes I don't know, should I undersell it and then let the punchline sneak up on them or should the setup be as be like, strong as hey. a punchline? Do you know? But now you could literally say, right, I have Try three 30 gigs this week. And by the end of the week, you will know what's the best way to do it because the audience would have told you. Do you yeah. see what I'm saying? So I think that's also another big thing that those guys, those markets have over us. I feel pound for pound, like just pure talent, South Africa is one of the hottest comedy scenes in the world. And I know I'm biased, but I always say, and people, I say, I've said that to big agents and managers and they say, why? And I like, because for example, in Australia, I was saying in Australia, the majority of your population is white, middle-class English speaking. So it's very homogenous. Yeah. And if you see a lot of Australian comedians, for them to really break out, this is just my theory, they end up having to really work hard at being unique and different. Because otherwise, Other you're saying the same thing <laughs> to everyone. No, that's why Jim Jeffries is so out there. What, do you think he's different you know to your I mean? average Australian? I, no, like, no, I imagine Jim to be like a bloke, just like an Australian no, he is guy. a bloke, yeah. but he takes it there. Yeah. But he had to. Because if he didn't, he'll be the same as everyone else. Okay. Do you know what I mean? If you're, if you're, I think. Well, I was just thinking his unique selling points is on the global stage. Is his Australianness, like to me? But the thing is, if you go to Australia, a lot of the comedians are talking about the same things As each from other. the same perspective. Yes, because they are all white middle class English speaking for the most part. So yeah, there'll be difference. Of course, every person's different to the next. But if you have come from a similar value system, it's going to be very hard to be different. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Whereas in South Africa. We're multilingual, multicultural, multi-class, multi-geographical, if you want to put it that way. Yeah. Durban is already different to Maritzburg. Maritzburg is already different <laughs> to Pretoria. There's black people in the Eastern Cape are different to black people in, in the Western Cape. Like, versus Benoni are so, completely different. So do you see how many layers, how much diversity there is, not just in like ethnicity or whatever, but just in terms of there's so many different cultural touch points. So what ends up happening is that we have a gold mine of material, a gold mine of perspective, a gold mine of opinions. And 
what that does, it just n- makes us naturally. And also because when you perform in South Africa and you want to do well, you're performing to different audiences every single set almost. That's, do you right? That is the big thing in South Africa that like, I don't think if you don't do comedy, you don't understand. It's just how different every room is. hundred percent. So now, especially if you're in the corporate sector or whatever, one day you're doing a gig for Caltex to like, it's a big awards thing for the petrol attendance. But then the next day you're doing a gig for Anglo Gold and it's, pre- you know what I mean? But you need to be able to adapt to whatever is put in front of you. And that's why I also feel like when South African comedians travel, we are able Adaptable. to adapt much easier than most comedians from other places because they're used to performing to a specific audience. You know what I mean? So for me, pound for pound, I feel like we are just in a in an environment that has made us comedy comedically agile and strong, and we're able to adapt. The thing though is that we don't have as many comedy rooms, as much comedy stage time, and that's the challenge. But you see what as soon as Law is in the UK and he's doing comedy in London, like he just explodes immediately because now he's like got all the stage time. Trevor the same and comedians when they go to Edinburgh, like Scott is in Edinburgh, is yeah. doing well. Like, that doesn't surprise me at all. You know what I mean? But yeah, I think the world will see it as we become more and more part of the global scene. But um, because so of th- guys like that and Edinburgh and stuff, like we are becoming a part of the global scene. You look at also not just sets, the various Montreal, yeah. um, Brisbane, like all the different, no, not Brisbane, Melbourne comedy, like all these different yeah. comedy festivals, like South Africans are actually traveling a lot more. Exactly. Um, I do want to ask you one last question and then I guess I'll chat to you again next year because I wanted to ask you more about the festival stuff. Sure. But we have gone over time. over time now and I don't know what your schedule is like, but I assume you're quite busy. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you, the last question that I ask every guest is what is a big mistake that you learned an important lesson from? A big mistake that I learned an important lesson from? Um, sure, bro. I made so many mistakes. <laughs> um, like they're keeping my phone Not on. keeping your phone on um, I think... Big mistakes, I guess, and it's been a continuous learning of the same thing, but I guess it has been trying to be someone that I thought I should be versus going with my instincts or going with my intuition. So that's how I ended up studying law, right? Because yeah. I thought that's what I was meant to be doing. And I think that and the sequence, it, it took a long time for me to realize, like, actually, like, and it's something that I used to say to comedians all the time. And then at some point I was like, hang on a minute, that could also apply to me, which was like, beyond anything else, go with your truth. Stick to your truth. Hang it like your truth is what you have. And if you can build your career around that, because your truth will always be your truth and nobody else's. And if you can make a success of that, imagine that. Like, Bob, we need more of your truth and for you to make more money. Do you know what I mean? It's like... And so I think for me that not being true to myself and not myself, not being true to my innermost instinct, intuition, like belief and just going a certain direction because, oh, that's what's done or that's what you should be doing. And, 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 and even with a lot of the, when I was managing initially, I was very conservative because I was like, am I doing this right? I don't know. And the comedians are like, dude, let's go, let's go. Just, you know what I mean? Just book the venue already. Let's go. And I'll be like, ah, you know? Um, so I think that would probably be it. And I think now I trust myself more. 
I lean into my own. And, and it's funny because many, many people say, yeah, but you've got all this experience, you've done all these things, but life, you just continue, you, you don't stop well, learning. I mean, like, you the, know? the crazy thing is it all started literally with just being asked to submit your CV, basically. Yeah for a production thing yeah. and then it led to all of this meanwhile your exactly. life could have gone completely differently 100 percent, 100 percent. that's so, so fucking cool yeah, i love man. that it's been a it's been a hell of a ride <laughs> <laughs> cool man well thank cool. you so much that's it thanks that's it. bro really appreciate it cool so that was Takunda. hope you enjoyed that hope you enjoyed uh, the stories there finding out a little bit more about the history of South African comedy. I definitely, yeah, like this one was a treat for me. It also came at a good time, you know, especially with doing the Point Waterfront Arts Festival, which we've got comedy happening from the 9th to the 11th of September at various venues like The Breakfast Room, The Chairman and Robson's down in the Point Waterfront area. And if you want to know more about that, go to almostperfect.co.za forward slash shows where you can see who is joining us from around the country for solo shows and uh, duo shows and lineup shows and just the whole comedy extravaganza along with a lot of other art and music stuff that's going down at the Point Waterfront Arts Festival. But uh, yeah, I'll just tell you, we got Mojack. We've got uh, Mojack Lohoko, just in case you weren't familiar. We've got Kate Pinchuk. We've got Sophie Jones. We've got Leah Jazz. We've got Waylene Bjorkus. And we have got Yassine Barnes uh, coming through from out of town to join us Durbanites. And on the Saturday, the 10th, we're throwing a pretty big party. This is like, you know, my gig. Uh, I'm going to be <laughs> hosting it. And there's bands and there's comedy and there's DJs. Uh, you can check that out on the website. There's like, there's Hoema, there's G-Soul and the Rockstars. There's Hated Related, there's Leah Jazz and Rob Forbes playing back to back, there's me DJing as DJ Michael Sarah, there's Waylene, there's <laughs> Yasin, there's Tibbs Do Me, and then there's Comedy. Okay, so that's that's on the Saturday, the 10th. I really want you to come through for that. I think it's going to be a really good time. Uh, the only way it won't be a good time is if you don't come through. So, so just pull in, bro, uh, and bro, that? No, that's definitely wrong. Uh, yeah, got to work on the comedic voice thing, hey. It's interesting because like, I definitely undersold myself a little in that conversation. Like, I've got an understanding of the voice I'm trying to project, or at least the understanding of the world that I have, which is essentially a cynical guy who's trying not to be cynical, but the world is so fucked up that how can you not be? How the fuck can you not just go, well, this is all fucking bullshit, but, you know, I'm trying. I'm trying. So... I feel like that's my brand, but maybe I'm not projecting that well enough. Or maybe, yeah, I've just got to... Well, it's, it's not even, yeah, it's not even. Like, things have been working, man. Like, the shows have been doing, jokes have been working, things have been going relatively well. and just not getting enough fucking stage time. So, need to change that. And uh, then I can start feeling a little bit more comfortable, I guess. Because, yeah, getting back on stage after years of not doing it and not knowing you know if you're going to get to do it again is quite something and yeah like i'm just got some ring rust i guess and uh, yeah we'll we'll work it out as time goes on anyway what else is uh what else is there yeah i fucking had a great time in joburg with the uh, coco and re went to their party mistaken for magic which was at smoking kills and uh that's 
a fucking sick venue. I really liked it. It gave me old school Burn meets the Winston kind of vibes, like when they were next door to each other. It's uh, definitely had that kind of vibe. And the band was sick. Zoo Lake, I think they were called. They were really sick. And then, yeah, Aaron Peters and a couple of other cats from the other radio were there. So finally got to like meet some of them and got to chat to them. And I was like, what up, Aaron? I know you're probably listening to this at the moment. <laughs> it's, yeah, it was funny. Both Aaron and another person like I was chatting to who listened to the podcast. I was telling them something. They're like, yeah, no, I know. I would listen to the podcast. I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, there are people out there who do know uh, my life story a little bit, I guess. So I sometimes forget that. I sometimes forget that those are people that like I don't necessarily know. You know, like I know I've got people who are my friends who listen to the podcast. And I also know I've got people who are friends who don't listen to the podcast. I'd say that group's probably a bit larger. But <laughs> fuck. Uh, also come to realize that there are people out there who I'm not necessarily close with. I don't know them that well, but we know each other from around the way and y'all listen to the podcast and that's fucking rad man that really stokes me out and i need to just uh remember that yeah people like the things i do sometimes you know <laughs> like i i spend so many years of my life like just like seeing myself as an outsider and as uh just uh the the i don't know the antagonist i guess <laughs> to a lot of things and I'm growing, I'm learning, and I'm learning to accept that, yeah, people actually dig me. People actually dig my vibe and the stuff I put out there. And if they didn't, they wouldn't be fucking 130 something episodes of those podcasts. But anyway, oh, yeah, insecurities and childhood fucking coping mechanisms, I guess. Pretty hard to get rid of. <laughs> Apparently, it takes time. Apparently. Anyway, yeah, I guess I guess that's that. I had a sick time in Joburg. Oh yeah, also partied uh, with uh, some of the comedians after Court Waylene's one-person show. So that was sick. Yeah, at the Dunkelder Theatre, which apparently is closing down soon, which fucking sucks because I've always wanted to do something there. It looked like a really rad spot to do stuff in Joburg. It's a pity that it's going to be going. But Waylene was sick. Fucking saw Leah. She was sick. I can't remember the names of the other comedians, but everyone was great. And then, yeah, we had a good time. Uh, we went to Baba Black Sheep and then Street Bar Named Desire. Both great names for places, both rad vibes. Really like Baba Black Sheep. That's like, yeah, just a room with a bar and music. That's a barber in the in the daytime. It's fucking rad. It's a cool, it's a cool vibe. I like it. And then the next day I did did toasted because I love toasted. Their soup and the fucking cheesy sandwich together is just mwah, fucking immaculate. Like. I will go there, like I will make a plan to go there whenever I'm in Joburg. Pretty much just for that, just for the soup and the sandwich. Although, I've got to give another sandwich a try at some point. Cool. So that's that. That's that's the vibe, man. Like, that's all I got to tell you. I could, I could keep rambling. We could keep talking. But I'm going I'm to let you go because I've actually, I've got to get some work done. I've got a whole little festival thing going on. I've also got some other work going. Fuck, I've got writing. I've got podcast editing there's a, a bullshit internet job that helps keep the lights on and uh yeah so i'm a little busy which is always good and uh i'm sure you are too so with that out the way 
It's time for the shout-outs. Now, the shout-outs is a section of the podcast where we shout out the titular titles tier over at patreon.com forward slash almost perfect. And uh, this is a tier, a $10 tier, etc., etc. You You know the vibe, right? You've, you've heard me say all of this before. You're not new here. If you are new here, just go to patreon.com forward slash almost perfect and you'll fucking, you'll get the vibe, okay? I'm, I'm done with this shtick for now. So, shout-outs as always to Rousseau who is the storage clerk of subtle heresies in the lesser Overberg region. Shoutouts to Russell Grant, the Far East correspondent. Shoutouts to our key grip, Neil Green. Shoutouts to the almost perfect hedge fund manager, Karan Sleman. Shoutouts to our spiritual advisor, Vishendra Nadu. Shoutouts to Riz Ventura, the director of purchasing. Shoutouts to King Julian. Shoutouts to Karan Chetty, the assistant to the regional manager. Shoutouts to Kath Jenkins, the enable ruler of the universe, and Queen Swifty. Shoutouts to our executive producer Stephen Olafia. And shoutouts to our benefactor, who is anonymous. Of course, I want to thank Damien Root, who did the bed music you hear underneath me, and the fucking banging intro song you hear each and every single week. And uh, I want to thank you for listening all the way through to the end. And I'll catch you on the flip side.